Welcome to Looks Like New on KGNU's It's the Economy. I'm Samantha Delal. This is a show that asks old questions about new technology, even addressing questions that should have been asked a long time ago. We join you on the fourth Thursday of every month on the radio, or you can listen online as a podcast. Looks Like New is a production of the Media Enterprise Design Lab at CU Boulder. Today, we'll be talking about the question, what is AI actually capable of? with Princeton University researcher Sayash Kapoor. If you have car insurance or have applied to a job recently, an artificial intelligence system may have been used to make a decision that impacts your monthly premium or eligibility for employment. Artificial intelligence or AI systems are increasingly being used to make decisions that affect your everyday life and are often not something we think about as we navigate through our days. Many companies claim that the use of AI makes their decisions smarter, But what does smarter really mean? More importantly, do these AI systems actually make sound predictions? This pattern, uncritically applying AI to notoriously difficult problems and accepting the results with minimal scrutiny is commonplace. A Google engineer has claimed that AI-powered chatbots are sentient. Journalists report on the inevitable replacement of human expertise with AI. All of this hype overlooks a key question. What even is AI? And more importantly, what can AI actually do? Today, we're going to have a conversation with an expert in AI systems and machine learning, asking the question of what is AI actually capable of? Sayash Kapoor is a researcher at Princeton University, affiliated with both the Computer Science Department and the Center for Information and Technology Policy. He researches machine learning with an emphasis on reproducibility and generalizability of machine learning models. Sayash and his advisor, Arvind Rayanyan have a forthcoming book, AI Snake Oil, that explores dubious uses of AI and implications of overblown claims about the capabilities of AI. Notably, Sayash and Arvind are writing this book in a collaborative style, soliciting public input as they write through a free Substack blog, where they post updates on their progress and encourage dialogue with the scientific community. Sayash, thank you for coming on the show today. Okay, so AI seems to mean a lot of things at once. What does it look like in your experience? And what kinds of AI do you interact with in your work? Um, I think that's a that's a great place to start, yeah. So I think the best way to think about AI is that AI is an umbrella term. That is, a number of different types of decision-making rules are often clubbed together under the banner of AI. So one example of this is learning decision-making rules from past data. This means that given enough examples of how decisions were taken in the past, uh, you can make a decision-making rule which tries to sort of mimic these similar decision-making rules in the future. This type of decision-making rule is often called machine learning or ML, and this is the dominant paradigm of AI systems today. In other cases, AI is used to talk about hand-coded rules, which are based on experts' decisions. This used to be the dominant type of AI system around 30 years ago, and it was claimed to be useful for all sorts of things, from medical diagnosis to automated test scoring and so on. And there's also the matter of where the AI system is used, that is the domain in which it is used. A lot of the recent advances in AI have been in computer vision and natural language processing. But AI tools are also being adopted in almost every scientific field, from psychology to economics to political science, And in my work, I have looked at AI being sold by companies under the banner of prediction and forecasting, as well as at AI tools that are used in scientific research, 
what we call ML-based science. Yeah, so you talk about using AI in the context of prediction and forecasting in your own work. Can you explain a little bit more about what exactly is forecasting and how do you use AI in this context? So when we talk about AI used for prediction and forecasting, it usually refers to making predictions about future events based on past data. A simple example of this is weather forecasting, where past information about weather patterns is used to make predictions about future weather events. Now, while weather forecasting seems like a genuinely useful application, uh, prediction using AI tools is all over the place today, often in very problematic ways. One example is HireView. HireView is a company which is in the business of conducting AI-assisted interviews for jobs. Uh, it claims to predict how well a job candidate will perform in their actual job using AI tools and a short survey, and maybe asking the candidate to play a game or two. This survey consists of questions like, do you keep your desk clean or tidy? Or do you work well with people who speak more or less? So you can imagine that it is no better than using a horoscope. But still, millions of people are interviewed using HireView every month. So making predictions about individuals is ironically the one thing that AI is especially bad at. And yet there are plenty of other companies similar to HireView, which make tall claims about using AI tools. To make things worse, most of these companies never publicly release the code or data that they use, which means that no one is able to independently verify whether these companies are good at all. Yeah, so just a follow-up question then. So you say that AI is bad at making predictions about individuals. Can you explain a little bit more about why that might be the case? Absolutely. Uh, so there are several reasons for concern. I mean, one very prominent reason is that individuals are famously unpredictable. Uh, I think it was Neil, Bo Neil uh, Bohr who said that predictions are hard, especially about the future. And so we don't know what any given person will do at some point in the future. Um, and further, this can change based on shocks. So for instance, if a family is suddenly evicted or it faces a sudden uh, tragedy or loss, uh, that can completely change the course of a, of a person's life outcomes. Uh, I think the strongest scientific evidence for this claim comes from a study from our uh, like colleagues at Princeton University. So they tried to see if AI can be used to predict children's life outcomes based on massive amounts of data from the past. So what they did was they went out and for 20 years, they interviewed uh, 10,000 families across the United States. They conducted in-depth interviews. So each child who was interviewed had around 10,000 data points about them. Now, you can imagine that this type of longitudinal data set is perhaps the richest social science data set that we've ever come across or created. What they then did with this data was they created a prediction competition or a challenge where they asked researchers to predict how well children would do uh, based on past information. So this included things like predicting kids' GPAs, the probability whether of their families being evicted, the probability of them doing well in school or dropping out, uh, and so on. What they found was that even the latest AI tools and this massive data set was no better than uh, at predicting children's life outcomes and extremely simple statistical tools, which just used four variables, things like the mother's race, their income, and so on. So this gives us some insight into why uh, AI systems cannot perform better uh, than these very simple sociological constructs. Uh, it's because children's life outcomes and people's life outcomes in general are inherently unpredictable. And this unpredictability remains even if we have tens of thousands of data points and thousands of variables about each child.
Yeah, so that study seems to provide really robust evidence as to why you shouldn't be making predictions about individuals using AI. Yet, as you mentioned with the higher view example, this is still a really prevalent occurrence. Um, there's tons of startups that do this. And I'm curious, like, do you have any idea or guesses as to why this use case is so widespread of AI? Um, yeah, I think I think that's a great question. I'm not 100% sure, but here's my hypothesis. Um, we discussed earlier that AI is an umbrella term, and this means that different types of domains where AI is used are often clubbed together. Um, there are some things that AI is really, really good at. So for instance, converting speech to text. So this interview, I imagine, could be uh, at some point in the near future, reliably transcripted using some AI-based uh, transcription tool. Um, and, and I wouldn't be surprised. There are some other things where AI is especially bad at. Um, predicting individual futures is one. Making claims about uh, how to automate judgment is another. I think the line between where AI works really well and where it doesn't is that AI works well when there is an abundance of data and extremely clear rules. Um, so take the example of speech to text. Given a voice transcription, uh, we can positively generate the ground truth. That is, what is the exact sequence of words that someone speaks in a given uh, audio clip? The same cannot be said for an individual's life outcomes, especially based on predicting data from the past. Um, so it is often unclear what the rules are in such a decision-making problem. Um, AI has also been like extremely good at playing games like chess and go. And once again, you can see that it is essentially free uh, to generate training data and to generate more data about how well an algorithm does, because you can just have the AI tool play with itself. Um, and also there are extremely clear rules about when someone wins or loses. So more and more, we're seeing that AI works very well in this narrow domain of settings with clear rules and an abundance of data and does not really work very well in settings where the rules are not clear, where there is no ground truth, and where uh, the amount of data is naturally constricted. For instance, we only have a finite number of people about whom we can gather data. Yeah, so speaking of areas where the rules are not completely clear, I wanted to shift a little bit to your background in industry. So you come from an industry background where you were a software engineer at one of the most prominent social media companies. Um, and a lot of these companies are really well known for having a ton of data, an abundance of data on individuals. But the use case or, you know, the actual decision rules at play may not be as clear as some people think. How do you see AI being deployed within that industry context where there's a lot of data, but the decision rules for classifications may not be as clear? Um, I, I think that's a great question. And I think, yeah, my time at Facebook, um, or I guess it's meta now. <laughs> uh, yeah, so in my time at Facebook, the company was really big on using AI. Um, AI was used for all sorts of things, for content moderation, for image tagging, for providing newsfeed recommendations, and lots of other stuff. Um, so on the content moderation thing, so just a few days ago, I saw Jan Likun, who's the company's chief AI scientist, talking on Twitter about uh, how Facebook uses AI to remove hate speech from the platform. Uh, he said something like, AI removes 95% of the hate speech before it is reported by a user. Now, this makes it sound like Meta is doing a really good job with their uh, AI-based content moderation, but it is important to highlight a slip. So Lequin's statement only talks about user-reported content. 
He says that AI removes 95% of the hate speech before a user reports it. My claim is that this this number is actually meaningless. Um, the reason is Meta could in fact take this number up to 100% right now if they disallow users from reporting content or make it much harder for them to report. So in other words, Meta is making a claim about the efficacy of the AI tool based on a number that is controlled completely by them. Uh, so this tells us less about how well Meta is able to moderate content on the platform and much more about what numbers Meta is using to talk about uh, its, its AI tools with the public. Um, but still, like despite issues with Meta's content moderation, I don't think I can recall any example of Meta actually using AI to make predictions about individuals' futures. I think it is much more about taking decisions based on past data and making recommendations appropriate. Uh, but even a company of Meta's size and scale, and as you said, with the vast amounts of data that they have access to, um, they're not in the prediction business at all. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And it seems like your concerns with the use of AI within the industry, specifically at Meta, seems to be more so about the setting of metrics, like who gets to set the metrics against which the efficacy of AI is measured, if I'm understanding correctly. What paths forward do you see for making the setting of metrics more accountable within industry? Yeah, I think I think there are several ways forward. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm the best person to answer the question before, because I don't work so much on social media, uh, but I've seen several pro- promising directions. I think for one, uh, tech workers have been increasingly talking about like getting power within companies. So right now, most of these big tech companies work in a top-down manner. Most of the decisions are made by management and workers who are actually implementing these de- de- decisions have little to no say in how they're made. Um, with the advancement of unions in tech in the tech industry, I think this is beginning to change a bit. Uh, tech companies are increasingly uh, being organized, and I think unions are doing a wonderful job of shifting some of the power, uh, if not a lot, back to the people. I think another way is researchers themselves have started to hold tech platforms accountable. Uh, so, for instance, uh, another project from colleagues at Princeton is called Rally, which was created in uh, collaboration with Mozilla. So this is a citizen science project where uh, people who are using Facebook can opt into disclosing their data to researchers at Mozilla and Princeton. And based on this data, we can get a deeper understanding into how social media platforms function and how to hold them accountable. Uh, I think similar uh, tools have been set up earlier as well. Uh, the NYU Ad Observatory comes to mind. Um, but they had like one significant point of failure, which was that Meta could unilaterally close access to researchers' accounts. With a citizen science sort of approach, uh, this becomes much harder because you can have hundreds or even thousands of uh, people voluntarily donating their data to Mozilla and researchers in order to advance uh, our understanding of recommendation systems. Yeah, so you bring up the term citizen science, which may not be familiar to everyone listening in today. And I'm wondering if you could explain explain a little bit as to what you mean by what citizen science actually is. Absolutely. Um, so my understanding of citizen science is when if you have a bunch of people who are not necessarily scientists by trade or by profession, opting into collecting data for a scientific project. Uh, so one of the best examples I've seen uh, of citizen science projects is uh, bird counting. Now, this might sound strange, but it is actually quite hard to get a sense of how well the bird populations are doing in a given area or in a given type of uh, 
uh, habitat. One of the better ways that people have found over the last, I think, couple of decades, if I'm not wrong, is to involve birders who are enthusiastic about, you know, helping out ornithologists out with data collection uh, in a distributed way. These birders are sort of trying to collect information about how well birds are doing in their area, or how many of a given type of bird they see on one location and so on. And using this distributed data, like no one person is responsible for the entire data collection, uh, hence, hence it's distributed. Uh, ornithologists are able to come up with an explanation, at least to some extent, of how well a given bird population is doing uh, in a particular area. Now, the same concept can apply to a lot of different types of uh, settings. And one example is researching social media systems where users of platforms such as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram can voluntarily give their data about which advertisements they see, uh, whether the advertisements they saw were left-wing left -wing or right-wing, uh, whether these advertisements were uh, more uh, likely to appear in the morning or in the evening. Uh, and, and they can donate this data to researchers who can then come up with uh, theories of how these recommendation system algorithms are actually working. You're listening to Looks Like New, a show that asks old questions about new tech. Stick with us. We'll be back soon. Welcome back to the Looks Like New on KGNU Radio. We've been speaking with Sayash Kapoor about AI systems and what they're capable of. Yeah, so that seems like a great way to sort of decentralize the work needed to keep track of large-scale omnipresent systems. And I'm curious, given your current work, and we'll be speaking about your book shortly, how do you see citizen science supporting efforts to keep track of and document hype around AI systems? Oh, that's that's another great question. Uh, I think one particularly important uh, way in which this can happen is by documenting AI failures. So what I mean by AI failures is when an AI tool is deployed in a high stakes consequential setting, say something like a medical risk assessment or car insurance uh, pricing. Um, and, and it fails at doing the task that it was purportedly meant to do. Uh, there has been one such project. Actually, there have been many such projects, but one which comes to mind is the AI incident repository. So this is a long list of AI failures that spans, I think, the last four or five years. Uh, at this point, the list is uh, close to or perhaps have, has passed a thousand such incidents. And this is a decentralized way of keeping track of AI failures. So each uh, item in this repository uh, is an example of when an AI system failed to perform as it was claimed to. Um, and taken as a whole, it's a great resource for researchers, for journalists, to keep track of how AI systems have failed in the past. It is also a good way to build a collective memory of how systems have failed in the past. So when a future AI system is widely proclaimed to be effective, 
We can look at similar examples of systems in the past and see how they failed, and perhaps even contest the newly adopted AI system uh, by showing how similar systems have failed in the past. Yeah, that sounds like an excellent initiative. So speaking of other great initiatives that are keeping track of the failures of AI and their shortcomings, you have a forthcoming book called AI Snake Oil, a- Oil that explores how hyperround AI systems can lead to fundamental misunderstandings of the capabilities of AI. Can you speak to how hype around AI is generated and why this might be a dangerous thing? Absolutely. Um, Yeah, I think AI hype is one of my favorite things to talk about, even if it's not one of my favorite things to witness. Um, And I think there's no one reason why hype is created. But in the end, I think a large part of it comes down to AI being an umbrella term. Uh, So as we discussed, AI works extremely well in some narrow settings. Uh, when there is little ambiguity, when there is no, like, uh, th- when there are strong and clear rules about how a decision is proceed, a decision proceeds, and when there is no ambiguity and get in, no hinders to getting large amounts of data. Um, so as we discussed, speech-to-text tools have always have a clear right answer what the speaker said. I think in other domains. Uh, AI systems become much harder to deploy. So we've discussed examples like predicting individuals' future. I think one key reason why AI hype is at such a high point right now is because companies that sell AI tools take advantage about the umbrella nature of AI. So they take advantage about the confusion between different domains where AI is applied, and they bank on their customers thinking that AI is one cohesive task. Um, so the success of AI in perception problems such as converting speech to text or detecting what objects there are in images, they bank on this, uh, the strong advances in these fields, easily translating into other tasks in their customers' minds, such as predicting individuals' futures. Now, of course, this is because of incentives that they have for making tall claims and so on. Uh, but this fundamentally undermines uh, their, their entire product because they're using the success of AI in one domain, which it is well-suited to, to advertise the products which are in a completely different domain. Uh, And so this exploits the umbrella nature of AI, and this exploits the fact that AI does well in some things and does not do well in other things to sell a product that can never, in fact, work as intended. So one reason for hype is definitely companies' uh, self-interests. I think another reason for hype is that the media often reports on AI advances uncritically. So this should not be a surprise. Um, newsroom budgets are sinking, and most reporters do not have the time to learn about new technologies in depth. And so as a result, it is a very common failure pattern when a newsroom releases a lightly edited PR statements and calls it a day. In fact, we recently researched 50-plus uh, news articles on AI and found that most of these articles, if not all, have uh, common pitfalls in reporting AI uh, tools. And this makes it sound like the AI tools perform much better than they actually do. So you you spoke a little bit about how companies play a major role in propagating AI hype, and so do journalists. I'm curious, how can the everyday you know citizen learn how to identify what is AI hype? Because you know to me, when I read an article and I see all the great things that AI can do, it seems exciting, right? I'm like, oh, this is great. Like, this would be so much more convenient if you know you if more equitable hiring with higher view. How do I know that what higher view is actually promoting is a form of AI hype? I think that's a that's a great question. I think one major distinction that a non-expert in AI can make 
is based on the task that the AI system is being used for. Um, so you can ask, is this a perception task, like object recognition or converting speech to text? AI tools can actually work quite well for those tasks. You can ask, is this a task which is trying to automate human judgment? Uh, so that would be something like content moderation on Facebook or automatically scoring test results, for instance, for TOEFL or GRE and so on. So tools for automating human judgment are serviceable, but they have lots of limitations. So for instance, content moderation tools still struggle with detecting satire in social media posts. They cannot detect if someone is seriously arguing for something that is banned on the platform or if they're only trying to make a joke about it. And you can also ask if the task is about predicting individuals' futures. So we've discussed higher view. Um, another perhaps more significant application is predicting whether someone will re-offend in the future. Um, so one example of such a tool is called Compass, which is used in courtrooms across the country to predict what is the likelihood of someone re-offending if they're released on bail. There are strong reasons to be extremely cautious about such research because we have been shown repeatedly time and time again that AI tools cannot predict individuals' futures based on the past. So it seems like one of the places where AI is really weak is making social predictions or predictions about social behavior. And I remember reading in one of your blog posts that uh, one thing that started your book project was an investigation of conflict prediction. And it led to something that you call the reproducibility crisis. Can you explain a little bit about what the reproducibility crisis is and how it factored into the conflict prediction paper that you examined? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I can also share a quick anecdote before I dive into reproducibility. So the paper on civil war prediction, uh, it wasn't actually about reproducibility to begin with. Um, when we started out, we were actually extremely curious about why machine learning methods can perform so much better than uh, like decades old statistical rules. Because in most of the other fields where social prediction were concerned, machine learning methods seem to perform no better than, you know, 20 year old statistical tools. Um, so to begin with, it really was our curiosity about uh, how can we transfer perhaps uh, the gains of using ML in this one domain to the myriad of other domains that science uh, scientific research is using uh, statistical tools in. What we very quickly found was that each of the papers that claimed that machine learning models can outperform older methods such as logistic regression for civil war prediction, each of these papers had errors in them. And so that is what led, led us to reproducibility. So to back up a little bit, reproducibility, according to me, means that a scientific research should be verified or could be verified as correct by an independent third party. So this means that it, sh it should have the basics. Researchers ma making a scientific claim should release the code that they use and the data that they use alongside the study. But this also means that the code and data should not have errors. Now, this part may sound easy, but it is actually quite tricky when you're using AI and ML tools. A lot of these tools are not sufficiently mature right now, and the errors in making these tools can be really subtle. As a result, dozens of scientific fields are now reckoning with results that are incorrect and cannot be reproduced by independent scientists. And this is exactly what we found in our study on conflict prediction as well. So each of the papers that we investigated uh, had an error when they used machine learning methods. And when we corrected the errors, the original claims were no longer true. 
reproducibility is important because it helps us trust science. So simply put, without reproducibility, there is no meaningful science since we cannot trust the claims made in any scientific study. So that seems to be a problem, right? If like the reproducibility crisis is as prevalent as you're claiming, how are we supposed to trust scientific studies that are out there? And more importantly, how are we supposed to verify that their claims are true or false? And what do we do if their claims are actually false? (laughs) I think that's the question of the decade. (laughs) But I mean, it's not like this is the first time that a scientific field is reckoning with a crisis of reproducibility. Um, In fact, a decade back, psychology had a major reproducibility crisis. Uh, In some ways, the reproducibility crisis in machine learning is echoing uh, the earlier reproducibility crisis in psychology. The way they got out of that crisis was by instituting a lot of systemic interventions. So this means that the onus was not just on individual scientists to do better, but rather on the entire community to adopt practices which would lead to um, better scientific research. So one example of such a practice is pre-registration. In pre-registration, someone can, or or, a researcher who's about to start a study, can, before they even begin the study, register what their hypothesis is or what they think the outcomes of the study will be. They can register exactly what methods they'll use to test their hypothesis, and they can register the exact types of tests used uh, in, in the entire scientific study. Now, what this does is it removes any allegations of cheating the results or hacking the results out of the picture. Uh, Because even before the study began, the scientists had already registered the hypothesis. Another issue for uh, psychology in particular was publication bias, which is when only like studies which have a positive finding are considered for publication. So in order to counter this bias in scientific research, Uh, Psychology started the trend of what is called registered reports, where it's not a paper that is accepted or rejected for publication, but rather a research plan or a registered report, which is filled in before, once again, before the experiment is actually conducted. And a journal decides whether or not to publish the research based entirely on the style of research and the methods used and not based on the outcomes. So this is another way that psychology has adopted to uh, reduce the publication bias in their field. And I think as a result of these interventions, psychology is actually in a much better place than many other scientific fields now. So instead of seeing this reproducibility crisis just negatively in terms of something going wrong, I think it is important that we also see this positively in, in, in terms of something that creates an opportunity for a collective of researchers to do better science, to improve the processes around their science. And I think ultimately the reckoning around reproducibility can only lead to uh, better machine learning and science in general. Yeah, so that's great context about um, how the field of psychology dealt with the reproducibility crisis. I'm wondering if you can make it a little bit more concrete for us Um, and provide some recommendations for how the field of machine learning can deal with reproducibility crisis. Because it seems to me that reproducibility is really figuring into the hype around, or the lack of reproducibility is really figuring into the hype around AI systems. For example, if machine learning researchers aren't incentivized to publish failures, then only the positive things get published, then people think, oh, wow, like it can only ever get better from here. So what suggestions do you have for machine learning researchers in this area? Absolutely. I think, I think that's a great point. 
Um, I think machine learning can definitely take some things from uh, psychology when it comes to reproducibility. So for instance, for the kind of uh, issue that you just highlighted about publication bias uh, and machine learning researchers only publishing positive results, uh, I think pre-registration is one way to go about it, where you can sort of pre-register your studies and that way we have a better understanding of uh, negative results in AI as well. Uh, I think purely out of pragmatism, there's also another way that AI systems can go. Um, and that is, uh, the like th that other way is uh, being forced to make changes in the face of public pressure. Um, so here's an example. Epic is the largest health tech company in the United States. Uh, it manages the health records of, I think it's upwards of 250 million people now. Uh, and it is used in hospitals all across the country. Um, in 2017, uh, Epic adopted a tool uh, which used AI for predicting who has sepsis in a hospital. Now, sepsis is a really, really important problem to solve. It's deadly. It kills one out of five people in hospitals. And it is probably one of the leading causes of deaths in, in U.S. hospitals and probably across the world as well. So Epic releasing an AI tool to detect and prevent sepsis seemed like you know, a great intervention, especially because they have access to such huge amounts of data. So when Epic released this tool in 2017, it was quickly deployed in hundreds of hospitals across the country. And people started using it. Uh, people started uh, making life-changing decisions based on it. But uh, the catch was that there was no independent study which showed that Epic's algorithm was valid until 2021. So this is four years after the algorithm was deployed in hundreds of hospitals across the country. And four years later was when the first independent validation study was published. And what did the study find? So Epic's algorithm was actually much, much worse than it was, it was claimed. Um, it gave false alarms in a majority of the cases. It failed to find true cases of sepsis a majority of the times. And in general, it called into question the integrity of this algorithm. So this is an example of a large health company deploying an AI tool in a life-changing decision and not being questioned for a number of years. Um, in 2022, actually earlier in October, um, Epic stopped selling this one-size-fits-all algorithm and finally put an end to this entire saga. But I think this means that companies, when they're deploying such tools in the future, will be especially cautious when it comes to reproducibility. So one reason why Epic's tool failed was that no independent researcher could look into the tool because they had just not released the code and data along with it. This also meant that any issues with the tool took much longer to find. And as a result, Epic's bad algorithm continued to function for five years before it could be stopped. And so this is like a real life case study of how important reproducibility and openness is for AI tools especially when we're deploying AI tools in life-changing and life-critical systems. Yeah, I think that's a great point and such a tangible example in the context of a life-changing situation. And I wonder, what is your perspective on the lack of governmental regulation around uh, machine learning and AI? Because it seems like these systems are helping to make decisions that affect our everyday life outcomes, yet there doesn't seem to be commensurate regulation. What is your perspective on that? And where do you think regulation figures into this picture? I think that's another great question. Um, so, so one like fun fact about uh, our project 
So we, we're calling our book AI Snake Oil. Um, incidentally, the FDA was first created to regulate snake oil. And so I think it's it's an interesting way to close the loop. Uh, and, and also, I think just last month, the FDA came up with a set of rules about when AI systems should be regulated as medical tools. Um, now, the, the rules are still unclear and the jury is still out on how well these rules will be enforced. But I think we're already beginning to see AI tools being regulated in some very meaningful ways. Um, so the FDA is one example for health-related tools. But I think all over the place, um, we are seeing interventions slowly but steadily starting to come in. Um, another example is uh, the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy recently releasing the AI Bill of Rights, uh, which tries to pre prevent uh, discrimination based on AI systems and tries to protect the rights of uh, people who are the subjects of decisions made by AI tools. Um, and I think a lot of it is uh, based on seminal work done in uh, AI fairness and accountability and transparency and the entire community, which has come up in the last decade or so, um, by almost forcing this issue onto the agenda, by almost forcing companies to fix examples of bias, by forcing regulators to take action on um, flawed AI tools and so on. Uh, so I'm not sure if I have a concrete answer of when we'll see regulation. But I think we're already starting to see glimmers of uh, meaningful regulation starting to crop up all over the place. You're listening to Looks Like New, a show that asks old questions about new tech. Stick with us. We'll be back soon. Welcome back to the Looks Like New on KGNU Radio. We've been speaking with Sayash Kapoor about AI systems and what they're capable of. So it seems like in order for meaningful regulation to take place, at least federal regulators have to have access to code and data. However, one of the common arguments that companies make is that the code and data is proprietary and they would lose a competitive edge by giving access to this data or making this data public. They also make arguments around the privacy of this data, especially in the health context. How do you see these arguments around proprietary data and intellectual property as well as privacy being balanced with the need for code and data in order to properly audit these systems? I think I think uh, yeah, this is this is another great question. This is something that people who have been auditing AI tools have been reckoning with as well. My personal take is that arguments for privacy and for intellectual property are a cop out on the part of these companies, and the reason is that there are lots of ways in which companies can release their code and data to a limited set of independent validators without compromising their privacy or without compromising their intellectual property. Um, we've seen this happen with healthcare data sets in the past, where you have to sign a confidentiality agreement not to disclose health data of patients if you're using a particular data set in, in, in a research project. We've seen this adopted for various other things in the past as well, when auditors have had access to 
even the company's most sensitive documents on the condition that they do not disclose what is in these documents, but just disclose their findings from the evaluation. Currently in the AI landscape, the opposite is happening. Um, people who are validating AI systems are actually doing so on the terms of the company rather than by signing a limited release for not uh, being accountable for, to be accountable to the company for not disclosing uh, people's privacy in the data sets. So I think a major shift needs to happen where researchers who are holding these companies accountable uh, get a lot more access based on some very limited things that they'll not do with the data, like leaking the entire code to a competitor, for instance. Uh, but, but they can still meaningfully evaluate how well a system does. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And I wonder, maybe you don't have a perfect answer on this, but maybe you might have a sense of why do you think AI and ML companies have gotten away for so long not having to be accountable to federal regulators? Because it seems to me that a lot of the power that you know big social media or AI and ML companies have is very similar to the power that, for example, Big Tobacco had back in the day. And I remember back then, well, I don't personally remember, but I've read back then, it, regulators faced similar issues with getting access to internal health data that big tobacco companies had, but yet they were able to overcome these obstacles. Why do you think the sector of ML and AI has gotten away for so long with not being subject to that same type of regulation? And how does AI hype factor into that? I think one reason for this happening is because we're still uh, new to this field of AI and ML. Um, so big tobacco evaded regulation for decades before it was actually meaningfully regulated by federal regulators. Um, and I think to some extent, we are already on the way to avoiding that kind of outcome. Um, AI tools have already started facing a lot of uh, scrutiny. And I think efforts such as Professor Emily Bender and Ben Schneiderman's uh, critical takes on AI hype, um, Dev Raji's work on auditing AI tools well, I think all of these things are already making it much more likely for AI tools to face much more meaningful scrutiny in the coming years. Um, that said, I think there are definitely lessons to be learned from past attempts. One of them is that you cannot trust the company's own data about its own products. Um, in other words, internal regulation is no regulation at all. Uh, so for the longest time, big tobacco companies just convinced regulators and the public at large that their own health data was a reliable way to gauge how bad or good their products were for people's health. Um, I think when such high amounts of self-interest uh, is involved, that is the, the company's uh, existence depends on this data being wrong, uh, then the company will find a way to either partially disclose the data or say half-truths or say completely false statements to convince people uh, to evade regulation. Uh, and I think we are already on the way to applying some of these principles. So for instance, uh, Deb has this taxonomy of first party and third party audits. And first party audits can work well for some things when the company can regulate itself in certain domains for financial interests. Um, third party audits work much better for a large variety of other things where you have independent validators trying to come in and uh, see how well a company does, especially if it is an, at odds with the company's financial motives. Um, so I think we're already starting to see this taxonomy play out, and I'm, I'm excited to see where it goes from here. Yeah, so that's a great hopeful turn in the conversation, and thank you so much for bringing up those emergent efforts. Um, 
I would love to hear some more in this hopeful vein. So we've discussed a lot about questionable practices where researchers and journalists overstate the capabilities of AI without considering the soundness of the underlying models. What are some examples of practitioners avoiding this same pitfall, avoiding overhyping AI and addressing the reproducibility of their models head on? And can you speak to this from the standpoint of good examples in journalism and good examples in academic research? Absolutely. Um, I can start with academic research because I'm an academic myself and I've uh, been very familiar with some of the efforts in the recent years. Um, so like one most prominent example is psychology. So we briefly talked about psychology's reproducibility crisis early on, but I think the silver lining there was that as a result of the crisis, the entire research process and culture changed significantly. And now I feel that they're much better prepared to handle similar issues when they crop up in the future. I think other similar examples have also played out in health research where AI tools have been used. Um, in particular, I really like the use of checklists. Uh, checklists are a series of best practices that must be followed when you're using a particular AI tool for a research study. And uh, believe it or not, like health research has adopted over 500 such checklists for different types of research. So not just in AI research, but say for randomized controlled trials, there is one checklist. For studies that build prediction models, there is another checklist. And what these checklists have slowly starting, started to do is changing the culture around openness and transparency. So in other words, when researchers have to document each of the items listed in a checklist, that also means that an independent reader or an independent evaluator of the study has much more clarity about what the study is actually trying to do. And as a result, it makes meaningful interrogation of the systems much more easy. Um, so, so this is one example of, of an, an intervention. Uh, I think similar interventions have worked in some, of the, some other fields as well. Um, so for instance, in the avionics industry where Air, uh, pilots now have to have like a takeoff checklist and a landing checklist and so on. Uh, this can really improve uh, the quality of takeoffs and landings that can improve in-flight safety. And so we do have lots of evidence that checklists work. Um, so I'm hopeful that the adoption of these checklists across a number of scientific fields would lead to better practices around reproducibility. And we're already starting to see some of that. Yeah, so... You talk a lot about like all these available tools that are in place, um, which is great that now researchers have tools to help them hold AI systems more accountable. But it seems to me that things like checklists, while they may be really beneficial, would also slow down the process or like the development of AI systems. And you used to work at Meta, you know, like the term, oh, move fast, break things, right? Um, and if making more accountable AI systems means slowing down the process, that also, well, some tech companies will say like, well, actually now we're going to be stifling innovation, innovation because we're slowing down the process of development. How do you counter those arguments around stifling innovation? I think that's a, that's a great question. And I think it brings in all sorts of angles around culture and around uh, what we actually want to prioritize. Here's my answer. Um, I think that slowing down in some cases is important to maintain the integrity of your product. So Meta famously had this slogan, as you said, called move fast and break things. I don't think that worked out too well for them. In fact, by the time I joined the company, that slogan had changed to 
uh, move slowly and build stable infrastructure. Uh, I think it was something along those lines. So this means like when people move fast and break things, someone does have to fix those things later on. Uh, I think the same is true for scientific research as well. It might seem that we are innovating when we are moving quickly and you know publishing five papers a year or something. But in the long run, I think it is much more important to have scientific integrity, to have reliable scientific studies. And perhaps that means that we'll publish one or two fewer papers every year. Perhaps that means that we'll carry out studies more carefully, but also perhaps a bit more slowly. I think that is a trade-off worth making. And I think that's what a lot of scientific fields are also realizing. With psychology, it was the pre-registration plan. Uh, the pre-registration report consists of like a lot of hard work. I mean, you have to decide uh, early on each of the steps that you're taking in a scientific study. You have to register them on this independent website. And then once you're done with your study, you have to go back to the report, uh, make sure that the entire study was carried out in the exact same way as you promised it would be. Um, and so it does, to some extent, involve slowing down. I think this slowing down is a key part of making good scientific research happen. Um, and so that's why I'm not too concerned about this particular trade-off. Um, but at the same time, it's not like filling in a checklist is the equivalent of doing twice as much work. In fact, I would say it's not even the equivalent of doing 10% extra work in a scientific project. Um, a few of the studies on the usability of checklists have found that people have been able to make more meaningful decisions about their study design. And they have been able to do this in a fraction of the cost, maybe an hour or two of work at the beginning of the project, and then another hour or two of work at the end of the project. Uh, and this just radically improves the transparency of what they're able to report. Um, and so I think it's, it's not as big a trade-off, but at the same time, even if it does involve making scientists a little bit more careful, I think the trade-off is worth it. And from an industry perspective, what incentive structures do you think need to be in place in order to encourage the accountable development of AI? I know um, a lot of industry folks will talk about, you know, uh, accruing technical debt, right? How can we think about concepts like technical debt uh, in terms of incentive structures to encourage the responsible development of AI systems? I think this is a great question. So technical debt is widely recognized today as something that companies need to address head on because the longer you write bad code, the harder it is to fix. I think the same principle applies for uh, the efficacy of AI systems. The longer you deploy a flawed AI system, the harder it will be to fix the ramifications later on. And so to that extent, um, companies can more willingly adopt third-party audits. They can allow auditors to come into the systems, check them for inconsistencies and so on. Um, while in the short term, it might be painful because you might have to roll back a product or make some product decisions you wouldn't otherwise. In the long run, this makes for a much more stable company because you've never deployed an AI tool that makes incorrect decisions, that makes you the face of a PR disaster, that makes you, you know, the Enrons of the world. Um, and so, like if we look at the short term incentives that tech companies have, I think it seems like a much bigger trade off than when we look at the longer term incentives of building a more stable company. And I think a similar point is being made by a large number of uh, like auditors as well. So third party audits can, in fact, help companies improve their internal processes. They can help prevent uh, like catastrophic failures of AI tools. And I think this is one of the incentives that that should drive um, companies building AI tools, the, the long-term sustainability of their product. 
Yeah, I love that perspective, looking at the long term instead of the short term, like next small when for your company. Um, <laughs> so I wonder, how should non-technical people think about AI in their everyday lives? Because there's so much hype around us. What are ways, and we talked about this a little bit at the beginning, what are ways that we can more critically think about AI? What are some concrete strategies? Absolutely. So I think one thing we already discussed was the distinction between perception tasks, judgment tasks, and prediction tasks, um, where uh, perception tasks are things like object recognition or speech-to-text, which AI tools perform quite well in. Uh, judgment tasks are things that would earlier be decided by humans, things like whether a piece of content is objectionable or not. And prediction tasks are uh, tasks which have, which we actually spend the majority of our time talking about things like predicting um, job performance or whether someone will commit a crime, and I think anything which involves ambiguous rules should be treated with skepticism. So AI cannot work well when the rules are not clear. I think this is one key takeaway uh, from from this categorization. Uh, and so, if it is a perception task, you know people can have some uh, faith in the claims that that, is be, that are being made by the companies. If it is an, uh, a judgment task, uh, the tool might work, it might be serviceable, but it might also have strong limits. And if it is a prediction task, if a tool is claiming to make predictions about individuals, um, yeah, there should be strong reasons to be extremely skeptical and suspicious. Beyond this categorization, I think one of the ways that non-experts uh, can think about AI is by relating it to their own experiences in everyday life. So for instance, uh, would if, if the term AI was removed from a news article, would they still believe the claims in the story? If not, then I think uh, they should take those claims critically. Um, we live in a culture where I think AI is made out to be this be all end all of everything. Um, and that means that, you know, every time we see the word AI, we are more inclined to believe that something can actually happen. Um, I think this is a mistake and we should, and in fact, anytime that we see AI, we should be more critical of the application. We should actually take it with a hint of caution, mostly because uh, of the incentives that companies have for selling their tools and making tall claims. Um, and finally, I think journalists uh, have also like sort of been one of the reasons why people have uh, taken such an uncritical view of AI. Um, but at the same time, journalism also holds the potential to make people aware of uh, how wrong things can go when AI systems are deployed. Um, so one thing that comes to mind here is Dr. Emily Tucker's uh, work um, where she and her institute came up with a list of rules for reporting on AI systems, like not calling something AI without explaining how it actually works. Because calling something AI lends a feeling of magic to it. It lends a feeling of, you know, uh, unexplainability, but at the same time of wonder into it. And so their institution has now started specifically naming what the actual application is whenever they're talking about AI. Um, similarly, Lakshmi Sevadas and uh, Sabrina Argu from the London School of Economics came up with a guide on how to report on AI effectively. And I think it's a great starting point for journalists who are new to the beat to avoid uh, hype and be more critical in their analysis of AI. Yeah, I've heard before, I forgot which researcher said this, but there's researcher that came out and said, whenever you see AI in a publication, you should replace it with a guy named Bob and see if you would still believe the claims if a guy named Bob was behind those claims. 
Okay, so to wrap up the show, um, first, I just want to say thank you. Second, I want to ask you one last thing. You've done a great job giving us your perspective on the pitfalls of AI and how we can critically assess it. I'm wondering if you can point folks to some other experts, both journalists and academics, that they can check out to learn more about critically assessing AI and AI hype. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to be here. And yeah, I'm very happy to share the names of a few of our colleagues and uh, researchers who have done some amazing work in this space. Uh, so I think at the top of my mind is Professor Emily Bender, who has written a lot about dissecting hype in AI news articles. Um, she had has this response to one New York Times magazine article on her Medium page in particular that you should absolutely check out. Um, Professor Ben Schneiderman at the University of Maryland has also written about a guidelines of do's and don'ts for reporting on AI in journalism. Um, Lakshmi Sevadas and Sabrina Argoob, as I mentioned earlier, have a guidelines guideline for journalists uh, to report on AI. And I think it's a great resource for up and coming journalists to not fall for the hype. Um, in a similar way, Dr. Emily Tucker has this great piece called Artifice and Intelligence. Um, where she details what steps her institution is taking to uh, sort of stop the hype in their own reporting. Um, then there is uh, doctors Dimnit Jevru and Margaret Mitchell. Um, you mentioned that AI chatbots are being perceived as sentient. In fact, they warned us that something like this would happen two years back. Uh, and so they have a great opinion piece on Washington Post talking about AI and sentience. And then there's also the work of Lizzie Kumar and Dev Raji. Uh, in particular, they wrote a paper called The Fallacy of AI Functionality. It's about how people often assume that AI systems work, even without first interrogating whether they do. Um, I think it's a brilliant take on uh, people's assumptions about AI functionality, on how we should always question the validity of AI systems, and how if we're not given any evidence, we should still sort of critically push back on AI systems. Great. Thank you so much, Sayash, for coming on today and speaking with us. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. You've been listening to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. We've been speaking with Sayash Kapoor. If you'd like to find out more about his work, you can visit aisnakeoil.substack.com or find Sayash at Sayash K on Twitter. I'm Samantha Dalal, today's host of Looks Like New, a production of CU Media Enterprise Design Lab. You can find out more about our work at colorado.edu forward slash lab forward slash medlab. If you liked what you heard, please spread the word about this show and consider leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Leaving positive reviews will help our conversations reach more listeners. We would love to hear your comments or guest ideas. You can reach us by emailing medlab at colorado.edu. I hope you'll join us for another conversation next month.